if someone were to approach you today and they were to give you a gift, whatever that gift might be, you should thank them for it. And I think we're all mature enough to understand that that would be an appropriate response. Or if someone were to offer you a ride to work, it's not a bad idea to offer to pay gas. Or if someone compliments you, generally it's culturally appropriate to compliment them back, to return the compliment. So we understand this. When you're given a gift, you say thank you. When someone serves you, 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 you offer to reimburse if necessary. When someone compliments you, you, you compliment them back. But what do you do when God steps in and he rescues you or he redeems you or he vindicates you from persecution? What, what do you do when God does something wonderful? Especially when God's efforts to redeem and just justify and vindicate us are, are pretty awesome. You might think to yourself, like, what, what can I possibly do? How do I respond to such a great and amazing God? When God is amazingly gracious or amazingly merciful, when he comes through for me in an extra special way, what, what kind of response can a little man like me possibly offer to our great and magnificent God? In Acts 4, the early church experienced the redemptive hand of God upon their lives as he redeemed them from their foes and adversaries, as he rescued them, as he proved himself faithful. In the tail end of chapter four, we see their response. And in their response, we see our response. In their response, we see the way that we should respond when God does equally amazing things in our lives. And there's two responses I wanna dwell on today and unpack and reflect upon. And here they are, there's two things, confident dependence and stewardship are godly responses. Confident dependence and stewardship are godly responses when God does amazing things in your life. Now, at first glance, confidence and dependence might almost sound like opposites. I mean, how can a person be confident and dependent upon God at the same time? How is that possible? Well, as we study the word of God in this passage, and I could give you other examples of this in scripture, it's interesting that those two things often go hand in hand. We could call call these humility, humility and boldness. Humility and boldness go hand in hand. Some might say they sound contradictory, but that's only if your view of humility is you know, quivering in silence. We have this weird view at times that humility means don't show any boldness, don't show any courage. That's the opposite of humility. But in actual fact, somehow the early disciples of Christ were both humble but it was a humble confidence and they were bold, but at the same time were very dependent upon God. So look at what it says in verses 23 to 25. When they were released, 
who helped them to get released? God. This was God's work on their behalf to release them from temporary imprisonment. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. You remember that passage where they're, they're like, well, we don't want you to talk about Jesus. Well, we're gonna anyway. And so the elders met and they sort of politicked a little bit. They realized like, the chips are down for us. We don't, have, we don't have the lion's share of public support. So we're gonna warn them, but we're not really gonna come down hard on them. Do you remember that earlier in the chapter? So God releases them. They go back, they report what the religious leaders had done. And then this is their response. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Again, one of numerous passages in the Bible that speak of the absolute sovereignty of God over every cell on the planet. Every atom on the planet is under the sovereign rule of God. Who through the mouth of your father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit. So now what the writer does is he goes back and he grabs a portion of scripture from Psalm 2. And here's what he quotes. Why did the Gentiles rage? The Gentiles being the word that defines the ungodly, those outside of God's covenant promises. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod. Notice the, they named them. By the way, I've often thought to myself, we all sin, but imagine being a sinner whose name is eternally recorded in God's word is a bad example, right? Not being able to just sort of die in obscurity. So here they are, he names them publicly, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, which tells us that even in the bad, God is still in control. Even in this nasty event, the crucifixion, it was still part of God's predestining plan. It's right there in the text, you can't deny it. God is still in control and it fuels their worship. Part of their worship. And now Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. When God works in their midst in this amazing way, what do they do? They immediately testify to God's release. Immediately, they go and talk about God's redemption. They immediately worship God. They immediately acknowledge God's predestined plans, his sovereignty. They speak of it in many ways in this text. And then they immediately pray for boldness. 
These are all acts of humility. Worship is an act of humility. Testifying to God's goodness is an act of humility. Acknowledging God's sovereignty is an act of humility. Praying for boldness, knowing that it doesn't come from you, is an act of humility. They're all acts of humility. But then you'll also notice they immediately acknowledge that the godless have always plotted against God's people. It happened in Acts 2, 2 and 3, and into chapter 4, and it happened back in the days of Psalm 2. They immediately name the officials who participated in Christ's crucifixion. They immediately acknowledge God's miracle-working powers. What are these? These are all acts of courage. So we have acts of humility, and then we have acts of courage because it takes courage to call out tyrants. It takes courage to name those that crucified Christ. It takes courage to publicly acknowledge when it's not popular, God's miracle working powers. It takes courage. So both courage and humility are the proper response to God's redemptive work in your life. This is what the early Christians modeled for us. Now, let me talk just briefly to this idea of courage because my concern as I look around at what's taking place in our world and maybe even in our church is some people have a misguided view of courage. They think of courage just as some internal thing. So we would say, some would say, to call out tyrants, that's a bad witness. To confront those that publicly blaspheme the resurrected Christ, that's a bad witness. Let's just stay in our little holy huddle. Let's not speak too loudly, ruffle too many feathers. God forbid that we're calling out public evil, that's not the gospel. This is the mindset that many Christians have. And frankly, it's the mindset that I was raised with that I had to later overcome. This idea that we just sort of stay in our church, we just minister to our people, and we don't engage with the world around us. Well, as far as I can tell, this is a public record for all time. The early Christians obviously thought differently. They named Pilate. They named Pontius Pilate. They named Herod. They named the elders. They named the chief priests that had participated in Christ's crucifixion. You see, brothers and sisters, it's not a good witness to overlook public blasphemy. It's not a good witness. Part of our testimony is to call out evil, to be a prophetic voice, if you will, into culture. It's part of our witness. It also sets people up for, their, for the exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If people aren't being told they're sinners, why do they need to be saved? Well, in all of this, God is honored. What, lest you think this is maybe a bad example, because sometimes when you're reading scripture, there are bad examples that are given to you. It's like you read about someone's antics and you're like, should I be doing that? No, there's bad examples of 
poor behavior in the scriptures that you want to avoid. But this is a good example. And the reason why we know this is a good example and it's one to emulate is because God responds by filling them with his Holy Spirit. Again, I know the words sound similar, but to be baptized in the Spirit is a conversional event whereby the Holy Spirit indwells you. But to be filled with the Spirit is like this. Look at my hand. When I'm obedient, I'm filled. When I start to be disobedient, I'm not as filled. When I'm obedient, I'm filled. It's a daily process. Think of it as a glass. The glass is being filled, it's being emptied. The glass is being filled. Now, ideally, we wanna be filled all the time, but we know our sanctification process goes a little bit like this. Here, these people that were already baptized in the Holy Spirit, we learned about that in Acts chapter two, are filled with God's presence. Why? Because they were obedient because they were humble, and yet at the same time, courageous enough to call out evil. They pray for boldness. Why is that? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that you'll never be truly courageous and bold without the Holy Spirit empowering that courage. Because you're always gonna second guess, you're always gonna, there's something in each of us, we just wanna run and hide. How many of you here love conflict? <laughs> How many of you here love the idea of suffering for your faith, being persecuted, feeling awkward in a room where you're the only Christian? You gotta be a real weirdo if you like that. But sometimes the spirit of God is just driving you forward. It's like, I, I, I don't want to. Frankly, I'd rather disappear, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I'm gonna act anyway because the Holy Spirit has filled me with his presence. So brothers and sisters, this is not something that comes naturally to us. And it, this kind of courage and boldness doesn't come from your personality. This is from the Holy Spirit. And you'll never be truly courageous or bold without submission to the Holy Spirit. You'll never receive the power of God if you are not humble before him. So check this out. Boldness without humility is just arrogance. Humility without boldness is just cowardice. But humility joined with God-fueled, spirit-endowed boldness can change the world. And you know who the first person who's gonna be changed when you change the world? You, it's gonna start with you. So assess yourself in these areas. It's good to be introspective and to be aware. Am I properly pursuing humility? Do I have a low view of self and a high view of God? And when I say a low view of self, I'm not talking about your identity in Christ. I'm talking about your incompetency, your natural propensity to sin and cowardice apart from Christ. Do you have that down? And at the same time, as you obey the Lord, do you have that growing boldness in your life to confront evil around you? So that's one lesson we can learn. I think it's super relevant. 
The second lesson is in the realm of stewardship. I think the lesson we're gonna learn here is that stewardship, if you properly understand that you're a steward, that's gonna lead to sacrifice and sacrifice leads to provision for all. Everybody is taken care of when the people of God develop a stewardship mindset, a stewardship mindset, not an ownership mindset, but a stewardship mindset. There's a difference. The owner thinks that their bodies belong to them. The steward says, no, this is God's body and I need to steward it on his behalf. The owner says, my money is mine, my time is mine, my talents are mine, my mind is mine, my spouse is mine, my kids are mine, my church is mine. The steward says, no, I'm just a manager. God is the deed, everything's in his name. I'm just stewarding it. This is the mindset that we see in the early church. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Check that out. Nobody had an ownership mindset. They all had a stewardship mindset. Nobody had said that. They would say, this is my car. This is my house. This is my ministry. They understood it's all the Lord's. It's just a stewardship. They had everything in common. By the way, you can't have anything in common. You're never gonna share and be truly generous if you actually think that your stuff is your stuff. So to be clear, I just wanna make this statement so we understand the context. The Bible has a lot to say about providing for the poor outside of the church. The Bible has a lot to say about feeding the hungry outside of the church, but that's not what this passage is about. This passage is actually about in-house ministry. It's very clear, the full number of those who believed this is a message for the church. Where, does our, where do we start when it comes to generosity? Among one another, with one another. We pay attention. Is there anyone here in our church who believes among the household of faith that we need to help out? This is what's going on here in this text. This radical community of people from all walks of life, there were some that were wealthy and there were some that weren't so wealthy. And people's antennas were up and people's eyes were opened. And when they saw needs among other Christians, they met those needs. And I'm telling you, the way they did it was pretty, pretty radical. So check this out, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all, which tells us as they held everything in common, they were preaching the gospel. So here's the thing. You got a church that just preaches the gospel. We don't do social justice. We just preach the gospel. And then you have the church over here that does the social justice. You know, they start the soup kitchens, but we don't preach the gospel. No, no, you do both. You do both. Social justice, as it, this is the modern term, I'll just use it for the time being. It's not a great term, but I'll use it. Social justice from a Christian perspective is always tied to the proclamation of the gospel. So whenever we help each other, we always do it in Jesus' name. We always do it in Jesus' name. Everything we do is in Jesus' name. There are hundreds of charities that exist in the world today that have essentially plagiarized the historic work of the church in terms of its actions. 
but they're not doing it in Jesus' name. They're not sharing everything in common and at the same time giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bellies get filled and coats are distributed and bills are paid, but the person still dies in their sins and trespasses. What a wonderful thing to be able to meet needs and to do it in Jesus' name, to build each other up in our faith. Here's the response. Verse 34, by the way, this is, this is literal. This is not figurative. There was not a needy person among them, not one. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and bought, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, so it gives a couple examples, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. By the way, I can guarantee you that Barnabas didn't ask for his charitable deed to be recorded in the word of God. Bible says, let another man praise you, not your own lips. But someone else praised him for his generosity. He literally sold real estate. This is how committed he was to meeting needs. There was a need. Evidently, it was a significant need. So he sold real estate to meet that need. This is how committed he was to meeting the needs of those that had come to faith in Jesus Christ. By the way, if we fast forward to Acts chapter 6, the ministry of the church in meeting needs, especially the needs of the widows and the orphans, became so great they had to delegate the responsibility. They had to choose six faithful men. Some think they were early deacons, but the text doesn't tell us. To actually administrate, to create a program in the church to meet the needs of people who had physical, material challenges. Now, while this is not a prescription, it's not a prescription. It's not like, okay, the, the way, the only way to be charitable, this afternoon, we all need to go sell our houses. Well, the reason why we can say that's not prescribed is because elsewhere in scripture, it talks about providing an inheritance for your children, gathering your money. The Bible says, he who gathers money little by little sees it grow. So having a savings account is, is a good idea. Providing an inheritance for your children is, is a good idea. So it, it would be hard, we'd be hard pressed to say this is a prescription for all, but it's certainly a description worth emulating. How far would you and I be prepared to go to meet other people's needs? Would we, would we cash in in our RRSPs? Would we sell off property? Would we pare down our material possessions in order to meet needs? The answer to that should be absolutely. Of course, we'd be willing to do that. And I would just say that if you're moving in that direction, and that's the kind of thing you'd, you'd like to be marked by, you'd like to be a, a person who's generous before the Lord. It starts in the small areas of life. For example, in your weekly budget, prioritizing giving. 
I hope you have a written budget somewhere. It's a good idea. It's wise. You don't put your mortgage at the top of your budget. You don't put your dating fund at the top of your budget. You put your, your tithes, your offerings, your alms at the top of your budget. That way, every time you open your Excel document, it reminds you of your priorities. You put it at the top. It's your first fruits, not your leftovers. You understand this when you invite someone over for dinner, you don't feed them your leftovers. Hey, let me get in the back of the fridge, you know, around the eggs, behind the milk, around the pickle jar. Oh, we got a Tupperware container in the back from some lasagna we ate three weeks ago. You put on a good spread. You give them your first fruits. You give them your fresh food. Well, God doesn't want your leftovers. He'd rather you keep it. I had a roommate in Bible college who was infamous for leaving leftovers in the fridge. He'd make up spaghetti and leave it in the back of the fridge and mold would form in the top. Start to grow an inch, two inches, three inches, four inches. I kept telling him, clean out the fridge. He wouldn't do it. So one day he was in the shower. I went and got his moldy tomato sauce. I opened the lid. I snuck into the bathroom and I dumped it all over him while he was in the shower. And he never left leftovers in the fridge again. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have told you that. <laughs> But you don't, you don't feed guests your, your leftovers. You give them your first fruits. And the same with God. We give God our first fruits. We give generously. And the, the wild thing is, is I know there's some accountants in the room. Somehow it doesn't add up, but God always provides. God always comes through. In your estate planning, you should prioritize meeting needs in the small things, the, the daily rhythms of life. You you start to meet needs. And as you meet needs, God expands your heart and your ability. And then you find yourself maybe doing some radical things, emptying savings accounts, cashing in TFSAs, selling land to give large amounts of money to those that are in need. We have a principle here too, the principle of a communal purse, which flows from a robust theology of, dis of stewardship. And that is, yeah, I know you have money to your name and I have money to my name and the person across the room has money to their name, but it all belongs to God. And so if you have a legitimate need and I have the capacity to meet that need and I don't meet that need, I'm violating this principle of a communal purse. So I would encourage you, by the way, to be connected with other people in the church because if you're just the person that drifts in at 9 a.m. and quickly exits just prior to that final unnecessary song and benediction. And you don't even know people in the church. This is sort of like a spectator sport for you. How in the world are your eyes gonna be open to the needs that may exist in the lives of the people sitting in your row? So getting connected to the church opens your eyes to the needs around you. Now, one of the questions people often wrestle with or ask me when it comes to meeting needs is, is what about discernment? Like, is it, is it okay if I'm a little bit discriminate, if I exercise some discernment? Because, you know, all of us know of people who supposedly have a need, they're broke, they're, 
they're, they're making an ask, but you, you're, you're looking at them and you're thinking, yeah, but you eat out an awful lot. Or you don't even have a job and you don't seem to be looking for one. Is it okay to be like discriminate, to exercise some, some wisdom when someone is asking to have their need met? And the answer to that is yes. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if a man doesn't work, he should not eat. Now, presumably the reason why that was written is because that was a problem. That there were some that just, they just wouldn't work. We're not talking about someone who broke both legs and can't work. We're not talking about someone who's in a catastrophic car accident and is per permanently disabled. We're not talking about someone that was born with disabilities that doesn't allow them to work. We're talking about an able-bodied man, a 25-year-old, a 35-year-old, a 45-year-old man who just doesn't get out of bed in the morning, doesn't look for a job, you know, who makes more money on pogey and so doesn't pursue gainful employment. And his life's a wreck and he's always broke. Do I have a responsibility to meet that man's needs? No, I do not. There's consequences to bad decisions. Now, sometimes we have people that will come into the church and they're new Christians and they've never been taught about stewardship. And there, there may be a, a period of time when we, we, we maximize grace. And maybe they've made some bad decisions. They're mired in debt. They, they don't understand the redemptive value of work. So there's, there's some discretion there. We wanna work with people. We don't expect people to have all their lives together day one. But if you know someone who has the capacity to work and doesn't work and you feel guilt tripped into helping them, what you might actually be doing is facilitating laziness, facilitating a violation of God's plan. The Bible says we work six days and we rest on the seventh. Somehow we've whittled that down to five and two. Fine. Apparently in the Nordic countries, they're wanting to take that down to four and three, the four day work week. But the biblical model is you work six days and you rest one. So don't complain too much if you're working a 40 hour week. <laughs> this is relatively new in human history. The Bible calls us to work and work is a redemptive thing. However, having said all of that, if there's a legitimate need, you're obliged to meet it and so am I. And we should be willing to do that and not worry ourselves about our income. God, God will provide. I've seen that time and time again. I know what it's like to have a lot and I know what it's like to have a little and God has always been faithful. He's always been faithful. Brothers and sisters, God is amazing. He stepped in and he rescued those early Christians from, from persecution, from trial, from public questioning. And when they saw the redemptive hand of God upon their lives, they responded with confident dependence and with stewardship. And so should we. And when we do, lives will be blessed and we will be enriched as well. So let's pray to that end that God would allow us to take these lessons 
and put them into practice in our own day and age. Thank you.